I'm going to read a little bit more of James than you have in your bulletin. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, and implied, of course, our sisters as well, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, uh, of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, it's always a pleasure uh, to be with you here at at, uh, Christ the King. Uh, Susan and I love to come and worship with you. Your music is always uplifting and encouraging. And uh, we just, uh, we truly sense the real presence of Jesus Christ when we're with you in this sanctuary worshiping. And I don't mean that just as a kind statement. It's really true. And you should be very thankful uh, for that, that people come in and see and feel and know that Christ is here. This morning, uh, I want to uh, talk from this passage. Uh, the the uh, verses that you have in your bulletin are really my focus uh, this morning. Uh, and I think it's a, a, a really good time. The season of Lent is exactly the right time for us to contemplate and consider the tension that we experience, that we're experiencing right now uh, in our culture, the tension between our culture and our king. In Jesus' incarnation, in his suffering and death, the resurrection ascension, his ascendance to the right hand of God our Father, we have the visible signs of the new creation. In Jesus' coming, 
we have the reality of two realities colliding. Let me pray for us with that opening thought. Lord, as we consider these things this morning, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to understand and to put right our place in this tension and how to deal with it. Give us wisdom, Lord. We ask for wisdom. You said that those who ask for wisdom, uh, you would not withhold it. And so we ask you, even though we know wisdom is complex, grant us wisdom, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the uh, tensions uh, is centuries now of singing peace on earth at the same time that we witness despicable murders uh, in synagogues, in churches, in mosques, wars raging around the world in which Thousands of women and children and innocents, non-combatants, die. This suffering and sorrow uh, is brought to our attention uh, in the book of uh, Luke, uh, where actually in several of the Gospels, but uh, where we are reminded that because of Jesus' coming, several hundred young boys were martyred, were slaughtered in Bethlehem. When the new king comes, he is hated by the kings of this world. The second reality is found also in Jesus' youth, in that very early part of his life and ministry, in the temple, declaring the wisdom and purpose of his Father in heaven. It is his ministry to challenge the assimilation of his people to the religious ways works of righteousness, human laws, Greek secularism, Roman autocratic authority. His clear, unequivocal declaration in the face of all this is, he's the king. And that his reign has come on earth. And that we are part of his realm. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us this tension is the fact of our life, the reality of the now. And it is the war of this world between the city of man and the city of God with its, with its perfecting of the bride of Christ. It's a struggle that leads some to actually deny Christ. It leaves many with a sense of hopelessness or anger demanding that we do something about all this. But in James chapter 1, we, uh, he holds out to us this tension as the paradox of our common daily life and the providence of our king. And the result of this is joy. That's, I think, the surprising part. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. It's shocking. If we take one side of this tension, we fall into worldliness and godlessness, and we lead double-minded lives. That's the warning he gives us in the middle section of this passage, why I wanted to read it to you. Unstable temptation, unchecked desire, which gives birth to death. 
But if we hold on to both sides, we realize the joy of the new creation of which we are now creatures. We become aware of our true citizenship. James, the brother of Jesus, says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If you're a student of James, you know he uses this word all often. Certainly, I think four or five times in this chapter. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James has seen and experienced the tension. He's in Jerusalem. He's preaching to the Christians there who are already under persecution from every angle, from every way. It's not a nice place. It's a terrible place. But there he is, preaching. Count it all joy, my brethren. This tension is decreed. He knows that it's intentional. He understands this is God's plan. And it's found both in creation and redemption. In verses 16 and 17, he makes his point. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Let every good gift and every perfect gift, which is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will he brought us forth in this truth, this word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You expect him to say creation there, but he says creatures. James is making a very careful distinction here so that we will not be carried away by ignorance or confusion, but rather be filled with joy. Now, I need to stop here for a moment and say joy you need to understand, is not an emotion. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is a fullness. It is an attitude, a state of mind, the attitude that God has given us as His people. It is the completion of life as our King intended it to be. We have now become part of that. We are in it. We are living that. Joy brings us emotions in their right context. Happiness, for example. And makes us whole. It brings the emotions to life. There's a stunning clarification in verse 16 which you must not miss if you want to understand and live in this tension. By faith. (laughs) Every good gift, he says, and every perfect gift is from above. Now, I want you to understand here that James is not just using the Hebrew context of of emphasizing. He's not just saying every good gift and also every perfect gift, or, or I'm emphasizing the good gift that God has given. No, he is making a distinction between the good gifts and the perfect gift. He is speaking about the tension when he uses this phrase. It's not repetition. God is certainly the giver of both. But this is James giving us his distinction between God as the kind and good giver of all his creation and the king and his immutable power and his plan and the execution of his plan for you, for his people. It's the distinction between what some might call common 
life and God's providence. Or some have called it common grace and the king's will. Any of those are fine, I think, uh, and helpful. Our, our immediate experience then is that we live in this common life, this common grace. And our tendency in this is to ignore God's providence. Now let's just think about it for a minute. How often do you use the word God's providence? You know, when we read our early fathers, even the non-Christians of our early fathers, they talked about the providence of God. They understood that there was something greater than themselves. And they talked often about the providence of God. We, we find that in all the centuries up until the last 60 or 75 years. Nobody talks about providence anymore. We ignore providence. We live in common grace. So let me take a moment to define this a little. Our common life is the rain that falls on everyone. We all you know that verse. It's the hurricane and the tornado hitting everyone without divine pre prejudice. It's the doctor tending the cancer, a disease of a fallen, corrupted world which affects everyone. It's the coach who likes or doesn't like your child athlete. It's the police and the EMTs uh, uh, at that blown tire that overturned your auto and wounded its inhabitants. In all of these and more, God is there showing His kindness and mercy. And we all acknowledge that and thank God for it. In the creation, His grace is there. His good gifts are given. In nature, His grace is woven through every aspect of the amazing beauty of fire and wind and ice. We acknowledge that. These are good gifts. We say things like, you know, if God hadn't been there, that car would have crushed me. Even the non-Christians say that. <laughs> I met a man at a general assembly several years ago with the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. He was a fascinating man. Uh, he was a lawyer and an elder in, the, in a PCA church back in Maryland. And, and we were so fascinated that we just sort of one night gave up all the other activities and sat down and shared our lives together. And, and he said, uh, he told me this story. He said, uh, I was uh, called up into the army and I went in uh, and was trained and sent to the uh, Korean War. And uh, in the Korean War, which you, we all know was a terrible war and, and a difficult war for the soldiers in particular, uh, he said, I started drinking. And he said, so when I was sent back to the United States and mustered out of the army, he says, I was a total alcoholic, a total addict. In fact, he says, I don't remember the next eight years. He says, they are a complete blank in my mind. I don't know what happened. I don't know where I went. He said, but there were three things that happened during that eight years that now I know and understand. But he said, one of them was that the police would find me and they would take me to jail and there I would sleep, I would eat, and then they would release me. He said, that was a kindness. He says, I don't know what they thought about it, 
but it was a kindness. He said, I knew park benches all over uh, the northeast. He says, I don't know how, where I was, but I, I remembered certain park benches because they were protected. There were, there were, I could sleep on them, and, and I would sleep on park benches. They had been provided for me. And then he said, but there was one park bench in particular. He said it was, uh, it, and he says, I now know where it was. It was in Baltimore. And he says it was back in the bushes, and it was dark, and it was protected, and it was a safe place, and I, I often slept there. And he says, the reason I remember that one wasn't just because it was particularly good. He says, but across the street from the park, there was a house. And he says, I have no idea how I got to this house. But I was knocking on the door, and a woman answered, and she invited me in, and she fed me. And she asked me if I would like a shower. And I took a shower, and when I came out of the shower, there were clean clothes there. He said, these were good gifts to me. And I remember these good gifts. See, God's good gifts, I'll tell you more about Him in a minute, are intended, God's good gifts, are intended as guiding lights and roadmaps, which on one hand teach us, teach everyone, about perseverance or endurance. They call for faith in His purposes. But if we can't see the grace, or we ignore the grace, or we deny it, the good gifts reveal the hardness of our hearts. Oh, you know, God didn't help me. God didn't care about me. God didn't answer my prayers. I don't want anything to do with God. We complain and we weigh God Himself and we find Him inadequate according to our standards. We choke on His gifts so much so that He has plenty of evidence against us of our unbelief, of our rebellious hearts. So much so that we come under His condemnation, the condemnation uh, in, of our sin. You know, this is a truth we even see about ourselves. I work with men out at the prison, have for years. They see their sin. They acknowledge, they acknowledge their uh, a just judgment uh, of God. Even proud sinners blame themselves. No one has to point it out to them. So even... With common grace, we rationalize and assimilate with the idols of this world. We put trust in education, we put trust in business, we put trust in sports, we put trust in politics, and we live in them trying to find our way, trying to find something that is solid enough to base our lives on. We put a lot of effort into law and governance until they overwhelm us with their judgment, with the weight of their judgment. Do you see, we hang on to secondary things and make them ultimate. If you live only in common grace, you lose both the good gifts and you reap God's judgment. God gave us Christian schools. 
God gave us modern medicine. God gave us the world's greatest government. God gave us our economic system. God gave us our laws. And yes, this is one side of the tension. He did indeed. His grace is in all. His grace is good in the creation. And it still works in spite of our fallenness and corruption. It accomplishes order and direction, judgment and longing for the perfection that was lost in the corruption as a whole. Common grace and the naturalism which accompanies it actually points directly to Jesus Christ's incarnation and His redemption. It is clear. It screams... I'm not enough. You need Him. You need Him. I'm not enough. I can't help you. I can't save you. You need Him. St. Augustine says it like this, Even the heavenly city in her pilgrimage here on the earth makes use of the earthly peace and defends and seeks the compromise between human wills in respect of provisions relevant to mortal nature of the, the mortal nature of man so far as it may be permitted without detriment to true religion and piety. St. Augustine is saying, yeah, we make use of these things, but only so far as they point us to true religion, to Christ himself. So now this brings us to the other side of the tension, the personal providence of the incarnate, crucified, ascended, and ruling Jesus Christ, who at the right hand of the Father says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm ruling. He is the perfect gift. He's the telos. Now the telos is one of those nice Greek words that we use to talk about the end. He's the end. It's not just the beginning. He's the end. We should think about the end and its impact on us, on where we fit in this. You should think about your death. Death is the fulfillment of life. You're all going to die. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. So if you know where your end is, you should be living your life backwards. You should be putting yourself into that place, in that perspective. Well, that's even more true of the king who is coming to earth, to rule the earth. The man, the perfect man has done his work. He's, he's offered up the perfect sacrifice. He's in the heavens. The heaven is healed. That separation is no longer there. A man sits on the right Uh, at the right hand of the Father. And He is bringing His kingdom to earth. When we meet Him in the air, we're not going up, we're coming down. We're coming with Him to the earth. That's the telos. He will rule the earth the way He wants to rule it, and we will rejoice. The wisdom and purpose that comes from endurance and the certain hope of the one who has all authority on earth and in heaven. He brings every believer to perfection. What he started, he who began a good work in you will complete it on that day, the day of salvation. This is James' conclusion. Let steadfast have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the divine providence 
of an immutable, unchanging king. Dr. Henry Krabendam, some of you may know him. He taught at Covenant College uh, for years. I went with him several times to uh, Africa. Uh, he is brilliant. He's written a 1,800-page commentary on the book of James, if you'd like to read it this next week. Uh, and he's Dutch, so you, it will take you two weeks to read it. But here's what he says about this passage. These two together, the good gift and the perfect gift, have the stunning effect of the stamp of God's sovereign, all-encompassing control and authority. His sovereign, all-encompassing goodness and His sovereign, all-encompassing perfection indelibly upon it. So there you have the tension. Let me make three observations. The first is, the divine rule of Christ carries real authority, real earthly authority, and therefore has real consequences. The first being that His law supersedes all other law. He is the king, after all. Jesus, uh, sorry, James later calls this the law of liberty because Jesus has satisfied and fulfilled the law of God. And that means that those who are united to Him in covenant by faith in Christ are free to live without fear of judgment or condemnation. Free to live in the gift of holiness, which is His character forming in us. Obedience, then, is the joy of His rule over us. <laughs> we no longer chafe at, the, at His law, at His authority. We rejoice in it. We embrace it as our privilege, the privilege of His people. There's no law against kindness or, or, or love, or mercy, or goodness, or patience. This is real liberty that we have. This is our liberty. This is what liberty looks like. Have we forgotten what liberty truly is? Assimilation looks like making our laws into distortions of His law, creating bitterness and resentment. Freedom for early Americans was deliverance from the savages, deliverance from the British, deliverance from the abolitionists, whom they all, they call, all of them they called Antichrist. That was a huge error. It was a shifting, a twisting of the law of liberty. One PCA scholar teaches at Notre Dame has said that the concept of liberty and freedom was lost in the revolution. I don't know if he's right, but I know this is what the law of liberty looks like. Were these things results of years of bad rulers and misguided teachers, uh, well-intentioned patriots, common grace gone off the track? Yes. A great example of this is the freedom in Rwanda was redefined as the killing of almost a million Tutsis. 
who after 100 years of French communism and Belgic nationalism had defined the Tutsis as a perfect emblem of evil. I met a survivor of that massacre. I was at the, uh, the, the, memorial, the Holocaust Memorial in Kigali and she took us on a tour. I had already heard the story uh, from my Presbyterian friends in Rwanda about how the Hutu Presbyterians told the Tutsi Presbyterians to come together. These were our people. We'll keep you safe. They gathered them all together on a compound. They locked the compound and called in the Hutu murderers and all of them, well almost all of them were killed. Some of them survived. So she's taking us around the, the memorial and she's describing to us the background, the history, uh, all these things and how, a, how a, a sort of a perfect maelstrom of evil had come together there to create this situation. And, uh, and, and in this memorial, they have, they've been gathering all the dead from all over the country and bringing them to here and they're all buried there. Tens and hundreds of thousands of people. So we're walking around through all of this. And she did a wonderful job. She was uh, very... Uh, she was, she was very controlled and very wise and, and, and she knew her stuff. So she's giving us this tour and toward the end I, I couldn't help and I said, how about your family? She said, all my family were killed. She said, when they came to my village, my father told us, he had many children, he said, run and hide and hide well and don't come out. Don't come out. She's, she found evidently a really good hiding place and she stayed there for three days and she was so thirsty she needed to come out. And when she came out, she found all of her parents, all of her grandparents, all of her uncles and aunts, all of her brothers and sisters, all of her cousins slaughtered. She was the only one who survived. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm sort of overwhelmed by all this. I said, how did you handle that? How do you live with that? She said, I saw in those three days the risen Christ. I saw Him. She said, God's providence for me was that I would be here to tell you that He rules and that I live. Were these things the direct hand of the king's providence? His judgment on pride and avarice and greed? His saving of his people? Yes. Yes to misguided government and misguided years of intention, of, of badly, well-intentioned but badly carried out patriotism and a common grace gone off track. Yes to that and yes to God's providence. His plan and purpose. This is the paradox that we hold by faith in His good and perfect gifts. Our joy is He's the King. Second, the church of Christ, the King, the church is His agent on earth to do His will here as it is done in heaven. We can never forget where our loyalty and allegiance lie. We are pilgrims. We are refugees. We are aliens. 
That is who we are by definition. We are strangers in this world. And we are just passing through in the name of Christ. In this world, in the, living in this world, but as citizens of the heavenly city. We were delivered from the kingdom of this world to serve Jesus Christ our King in His kingdom. We are the realm and reign of His kingship and the ultimate perfection of His people. You cannot be a citizen of both cities. You must choose one or the other. You are either of the one. That means that your thoughts and desires and your actions are then guided by that choice, by that citizenship. This makes the church and its liturgies, the way we work and worship, crucial to our life and service to our King. We are a community of peace and mercy and justice by our very nature as being in Christ. When we forget who we are and get caught up in the affairs of this world, we forget the ultimacy of Jesus our King. We die a slow spiritual death in this world of man. It is our failure to see the perfect end result of practical godliness which comes down to us in Christ Himself as we do His will. It's to fall into competition in this world, with this world. If our opinions lead to judgments and condemnations of others, then we have lost sight of His ultimacy. We have become shifting shadows, turning this way and that to hold on to our power, riches, and security. Remember, this is James saying this in Jerusalem. We give up, we easily give up on the poor. Injustice, brokenness, loneliness. But that, James says, is not who you are. You are the first fruit of something this world has never seen. The new creature of the new creation. What an honor. What a position. What authority He has given us, His church. The people of Jesus who love at all costs, who lay down our lives, who die to ourselves, who die to our opinions. Our joy is we are His new race of people. The end of that story of the man who was drunk for eight years, he, he said, this is the most striking part of his story. So he's telling me all this and he says, then one morning, I woke up. He says, no, I, I actually completely woke up. I was awakened. I was sober. I looked around. I knew who I was. I, I wasn't sure where I was, but there was something familiar about this place. And I looked across the street and I saw that house. And I got up and I went and I knocked on the door. And a woman answered and he said, do you know me? She says, oh yes, you've been here many, many times. 
She said, come in and have breakfast and I'll tell you all about it. So he goes in, he sits down and has breakfast. And she tells him all about all the times that he's come there and how she's invited him in, sits him down for breakfast and tells him about Jesus. Then he goes and gets a shower and gets a new set of clothes. Only this time, after his shower and new set of clothes, he, she, he comes back and she says, what are you going to do now? God has awakened you. What are you going to do? He says, well, I, gosh, he says, I don't know, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. She said, there's a law school right down the street. You've got the GI Bill. You can go down there. See if you can get in. If you can get in, you can live here. I'll, I'll, I won't charge you any rent. You can go to law school. He goes down the next day. He signs up in law school. He lives at her house. He gets his law degree. He marries her. <laughs> now I'm talking providence. <laughs> we live in joy in an imperfect nation and an imperfect world. No one on the side of the uh, on on one, on one side of the paradox we are to submit to the authority of the civil government. On the other, we are to give all obedience to the authority of our king, who is ultimate. How do we do this in the face of wickedness? The answer lies in his personal sovereign providence for us. We have joy. We have his word, the word of truth. We have his plan in large. We don't have all the details. His purpose and will for you and we know that it will come to pass. So we pursue what we know. We live in the Spirit and not in the flesh. His plans, uh, which come perfectly to pass, even as they result in judgment and a new earth. Those things are constantly going on. This means in light of my joy, my opinions really are irrelevant. Your opinions are irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the word of truth, his opinion, his interpretation, his statements. That's what we live by. In light of his city, which comes down from heaven, the cities of this world fade away. No matter how big and strong they may be today, they're gone tomorrow. If you are a citizen of the heavenly city, you see the future of your city. And instead of reacting and taking offense at the sin that is there, Rather, you respond with those who are caught up in the darkness and the sorrow and the misery and you have compassion and you love. You love with the love of Christ. A world that's coming apart because there are no further answers to be found here. Herman Bavink uh, was a Dutch theologian of the 20th century. He's now with the Lord. Uh, his work for a long time was in Dutch, and most of us couldn't access that. But recently it was translated, and he has this quote. The Christian with Scripture in their hands and Augustine as their leader. I, love, I, I, I like that part because I really like St. Augustine. <laughs> um, Do not stop at the consideration of secondary causes. Secondary causes are, you know, what your state legislature just did or what the Congress just did or or uh, that hurricane that just blew through, or the snowstorm up in Las Cruces that left us all shoveling snow off of our front steps. Oh, no, that was, that was Seattle, sorry. Um, secondary causes are all those things we live with. He says, 
but venture to push on to faith in the primary cause. That is the will of Christ, in which alone they experience rest for their mind and life. The doctrine of predestination finds its invincible power and severity in the facts of world history interpreted by God's Word as the implementation of His eternal counsel. Our joy is we know who we are. You know who you are in Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that several of you saw the new Mary Poppins movie. Uh, it's sort of a remake of the old uh, Mary Poppins movie. Uh, Mr. Banks, you know, got into trouble. Well, now it's his children. They're, they're basically in the same uh, problem. Uh, they once again have made the secondary things ultimate, and they're, and they're struggling, and they're having a hard time, so Mary Poppins has to come back and set things right. Well, in the middle of this film, there's this wonderful, wonderful scene. You need to see the movie just for this scene, uh, after I've interpreted it correctly to you. Um, the, um, the, the kids break, uh, they, they're, they're financially in trouble. And uh, they break this large ceramic bowl, which they all had thought was going to be their salvation. The, the, I mean, it's, it's worth a lot of money, and it's going to keep us from losing our house because the bank's about to foreclose on the house, and it's a, an, an unjust foreclosure, incidentally. Uh-oh, spoiler, sorry. Uh, but anyway, the, the kids break the, this invaluable urn and Mary Poppins says, don't worry about it. I know somebody who can fix it. And she takes the kids and they go down this long alley that looks really threatening and so on. And they come to this place and, they, and it says the, the uh, uh, abode of topsy-turvy. And they go inside and everything's upside down. And they're all shocked and they say, well, how can this person help us and so forth and so on. And then topsy-turvy comes out and it begins to explain to them that actually everything is right side up. And they're upside down. So they all stand on their heads and they, they do different things. And, and there's music and it's a wild, crazy scene. And all of a sudden it hits you. Topsy-turvy is turning things right. This, the bowl was worthless. I can fix, but I'll fix the bowl for you. But the bowl is a demonstration, a symbol to you of what is right. And it wasn't at all what you thought. So let's turn it right side up. I love it <laughs> because I think it's a scene that essentially says, put your faith in Christ. It doesn't use that language. And, of course, I'm reading that in. Uh, others will get other ideas, but I thought, haven't you, haven't you thought the world was upside down? <laughs> okay. Maybe Christ turned us right side up. <laughs> in fact, I think that's exactly. So the point, my conclusion is this. Put the king back in the center of your thinking, into your conversations. What does he say? Um, and then you will begin to find how worthless these other things were and you'll find your joy. Look at every issue from the perspective of his throne and what he says about it. Look for every possible way to lift him up in the lives of people around you. It's not about you. It never was. It's not about your abilities or your convictions or your likes. It's about demonstrating His compassion, His love, His will, using every gift you've been given. Serve others in their darkness. Hold your tongue. Think again of, with His perspective on this time, 
that we're living in and pursue godliness. This, my brothers and sisters, is the joy that brings steadfastness. Amen.